Now, maybe the original difficulty in governing in our modern age of democratic governments, especially here in the West, um, the original difficulty, I think, in governing in a democracy is this balance. How we balance, how our government balances freedom versus order. Those two are often um, on opposite ends uh, of a balance. Uh, during the Enlightenment era that our uh, democracy and all really all Western democracies, modern democracies uh, grew out of, came this idea that individuals are as valuable as like the state as a whole. Um, the idea that governments should exist to protect and to promote individual rights, individual freedom, liberty. The, 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 the individual was important. That's why Thomas Jefferson, author of our declaration, main author, American champion, one of the two or three most important Americans ever, he wrote and he believed this, that government is best which governs least. Um, he was a champion of individual liberty. It's an American ideal that we all hold dear. There was another founding father, a guy named James Madison, little Jimmy, he was only about this tall, uh, main author of the Constitution. He said this, though. He was fond of saying this. Um, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. And that is, that's the balance. We want to champion and protect and promote individual rights, but we all know, like, like turn on the news, when, when people are allowed to really do whatever they want, things get scary in a hurry. Because we will, as human beings, we will exploit others. We will endanger others. We will hurt others to get what we want, whether that is profit or a thrill or whatever. The... Uh, Another quote that has long been thrown around, it's been thrown around so much, so long, you, it's impossible to identify who even said this, is uh, something like this. Your right to swing your fist ends where my nose begins, right? Um, that our founding fathers threw this around. Like, I have every right and freedom to stand up here and swing my arms around. I might look stupid, but I'm completely free. I have every right to do this, Right? We would all agree I'm doing nothing wrong. But the closer I get to someone else, right? At some point, my, my right to swing my fists around is going to come into contact literally with John's right to not get punched in the nose. And that's a very simple and elementary example of a government's difficult job of balancing individuals' right to be free and do what they want, and everyone's right to feel collectively safe. And those are often opposite. That is the heart of this coronavirus debate. How is a government of the people, by the people, for the people, supposed to govern those people that give it its power when like half the population wants their individual freedom? I want to go where I've always gone and do what I've always done. 
and the other half of the same population won't feel safe unless those people's rights are limited by that same government. It's freedom versus order. And this seems new, but it's old. Now, I'll put my old beginning of the year uh, government class lecture away now and say this. Many, many people have the mistaken notion that that's what Christianity is really like. That the Christian life is this balance, trying to get this balance or this battle of freedom and order, only take the government out of the illustration and put God there. Many people think life as a Christian is about me. I want to figure out, I want to do what I want to do. I want to go as far as I can go. I want to, want to have as much freedom as I can. And, and God, the giant, the great fun sucker in the sky, he is the one that's always limiting my, my freedom. He's taking away my freedom and telling me all the time what I can't do. Does that sound familiar as an idea of the Christian life at all? What Paul is going to tell us today, that's, that's not at all what the Christian life is. That's not what God is like. And if that is our idea of freedom, and for most of us it is, Paul's going to make sure we know today we don't know what true freedom actually means. Let's read our passage this morning. Romans chapter 6, verses 15 through 23. They read this way. What then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members or your bodies as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay, Paul starts today in a very similar spot to where Paul started the previous paragraph and we studied it last week, um, he, he starts in a very similar way in verse 15 that he started in verse 1. If you glance up at verse 1, Paul asks this question, what shall we say then? Are we to remain in sin so that grace may increase? Today, he says, what then? 
Shall we sin because we're not under law, but under grace? Paul's continuing to answer this question he has to deal with. It's very logical after presenting the gospel of grace. So, Paul, are you saying, as Christians, all I, have to, I just believe in Jesus, and then I'm free to just sin and sin and sin and sin with impunity, and sin no longer has any consequences, because God's going to forgive me anyway. In verse 1, he just says, well, if, if the cross makes God look gracious, if if forgiveness just makes, glorifies God because it makes him gracious, why don't we just give him more opportunities to be gracious? And sin and sin and sin. And today, Paul says, well, we're not under law. The law works like this. You behave, and I'll either punish you or bless you based on your behavior. If we're not under that any longer, then can we just, are we just free to sin? Both same parts of the, two different parts of the same question both get the same rejection from Paul. Absolutely not. This is the New English translation. Or may it never be. No way. That's not how grace works. But why is it not how grace works? Paul has explained. People are saved, rescued by God. People are declared righteous by God, which is the requirement for eternal life. Nobody's going to heaven unless God says you are righteous. The problem is there's no one righteous, Paul told us. By our behavior, no one's going to earn that declaration from God. So God has given us a free gift of a declaration of righteousness when we believe on Jesus Christ. And that declaration is apart from our behavior. It has to be or we're all doomed. So the question becomes, so what, so what then? Can I just sin and sin and sin and sin because I'm redeemed? Paul says, no, absolutely not. Why not? This is his second long answer to that question today. And to answer that question, Paul is going to, to use a metaphor about slavery. Um, Paul uses slavery because it was so common in, to the people he was writing to. There were millions and millions of slaves in the Roman Empire. The, the people to whom Paul is writing, the Christians in Rome, Paul does, has never been there. He doesn't have to be to understand this. They know slaves. Everyone did. There's a very real possibility many of them were slaves. So Paul uses this metaphor because it's so familiar to them, right? It was like if I use a, uh, when I use illustrations about like sports today, somebody in first century Rome might, would have no idea what I'm talking about if I described the feeling of scoring a touchdown, right? And for us, we've lost a little bit of this metaphor because our idea of slavery is so different from their idea of slavery. In Paul's day in first century Roman world, most people who were slaves were slaves because of debt. There was not bankruptcy, okay? You didn't uh, go to court and declare bankruptcy and the debt, all that stuff. None of, there was none of that. If I got myself so far upside down in debt that I just was not going to be able to repay all my debts, I could go to either the, the, my one debtor or I could go to my, like one of my main debtors who would assume all of my debts, but I would basically sell myself to him. Or if I got so far in trouble, the, the courts would order me to become this person's slave. 
and so that person would own me. He would have to feed me and uh, take care. But I, for a prescribed period of time, I would become the slave of that person. Sometimes that was my idea. Like the only way I'm ever going to get out of this is if I sell myself to, to you. And so that's, that's the idea. But when, that, when you entered into that agreement, you were owned by that person. And so you had to be obedient to that person, like legally. And so that is the metaphor. Now, this is not a metaphor with, with, that you can press too far. It's got limitations. And Paul grants that. I'm just jumping into verse 19 to show you something. The first part of verse 19, some translations put in parentheses. It is like a parenthetical statement from Paul. He just says, I'm talking about slavery. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. That's Paul saying this. By the way, the weakness of your human flesh here is not your sin because you guys are sinners. It's we have a weak ability to try and understand huge things of God. Like God's a lot to comprehend sometimes, isn't he? <laughs> Paul says, so I'm just trying to use something that's familiar with, to you guys so that, so that we, in the weakness of our, of our humanity, can try to understand these big abstract concepts. For example, how come I'm under grace, but I can't just sin all the time? If I want, Paul says, I'm going to use slavery as a metaphor, but don't press it too far. For example, the Christian life, Paul's going to encourage us to become slaves of God. But that is not our punishment for the debt we have racked up, which is what slavery was in their world. Uh, it is not, we, it's not us trying to work off this debt that God paid on our behalf. That's not at all the Christian life. But um, it is a very helpful metaphor, and so Paul uses it. And if we would read through that passage again, you would notice, if you pay attention, Paul repeats himself a lot in that, uh, in that paragraph. So instead of going verse by verse, Paul repeats himself because he wants to hammer away at some certain points. And so I want to go, I want to kind of pull those points out for you, and we're going to go by through them point by point. And on the screen, I'll show you the verses where he um, supports those main points, okay? So, Paul's first point in this. Remember, he's answering this question. Why, why is it true that I cannot just sin with impunity because I'm under grace and not law. Reason number one, Paul says, as human beings, as Christians, we will be slaves of something. And we really only have two choices. Paul presents those two choices. He says this over and over again. If you look at verse 16, 17, 18, 20, 22, the two choices it might be worded a little differently, but they're in there. When I said in the introduction, that most people, we really don't understand what real freedom is. This is why I say that. Naturally and normally, the way we are born, I, I'm convinced, I believe, we carry around with us a bad and false definition of freedom. We think freedom is, um, and I'm going to quote Dr. Robert Mounts in his commentary, he said, if, as human beings, we tend to believe that freedom is 
unlimited spontaneity. Unlimited spontaneity. We think true freedom is happening anytime I can do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, for as long as I want, and nobody can tell me any different. We think that is freedom. And any kind of accountability, any kind of responsibility, any kind of Anything that limits my ability to be absolutely spontaneous is impinging upon my freedom. It's taking away my freedom. And Paul wants us to know that's false. But that bad, false definition of freedom is what keeps lots and lots of people away from Christianity. That's what makes a lot of people not want to do life with Jesus because... Why would I want to enter into this this thing where I become a servant of God? He's just going to take away all that freedom I have. Here's, Here's the things I want to do. Why would I want to enter into this Christianity thing and let God tell me I can't do what I want to do? But that's a bad definition of freedom. It it's false. So Paul drives this point home in this passage. Everyone is going to be the slave of something. Either sin or God. Either sin or, and Paul doesn't always say God, he might say a slave of righteousness, a slave of obedience, um, a slave of something that points at God. We'll read verse 16 again, just... To take this one place, he makes the point. Do you not know? If you present yourselves as obedient slaves, there's the slavery metaphor. You're in debt. You go and present yourself as a slave to someone. You are, you're going to be a slave of the one you obey. And Paul says, and here's your choice as a human being, as a Christian. You're either going to be a slave of sin that's going to result in death, or you're going to be a slave of obedience, which results in righteousness And that's your only two choices. Again, he says it a little differently in the two choices. In verse 17, verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, and verse 22. We only have two choices. In the previous paragraph, what we studied last week, Paul talked about sin as a power. And he said this, sin wants to enslave you. Sin, I said this last week, but turns out it's still true this week. Sin does not want to be your friend. Sin does not want to be, even though we tend to to have little pet sins, we think we can use to get what we think we want. And these can be immoral things that will help us have a good time that we think we want. Or it can be sins that can help us profit, help us control other people. We have these little pets and I can use my anger. I can use manipulation to control other folks, to get what I want, right? We have lots and lots of sins we think we control that help us. Sin does not want to be your friend and your assistant and something that helps you. Sin wants to reign. It wants to control you. And it will if you, what was the word from last week? If you let it. And that's why we fight. That's why we fight. Pushing that concept forward into into this week, Paul says that's why, as human beings, we're not just like in neutral, where I can control 
all this stuff that I want to do, and if I have complete human freedom, I'll be happier. No, Paul says sin is going to rule us, reign us, reign over us, control us. Your appetites will become your master. If you let them. Paul says that in verse 16. That's why I chose verse 16 as the one to illustrate this. Look at this. You're either going to obey sin. Um, oh, wait a minute. Wrong place. Um, the second part of verse 19. There it is. Second part of verse 19. Paul says this. For just as you once presented your members, your bodies, as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, what do impurity and lawlessness result in? More lawlessness. There's a picture of why sin reigns. Why we don't control sin, sin controls us. We think, I'll just sin a little bit. (laughs) I'll just sin a little bit. But it always leads to more sin. Right? When When I learn, I don't do this consciously, but when I learn, I can use my anger to make other people back down. I do it again. I do it again. I do it again. And before long, you know what I am? I'm an angry, controlling person. And I can, you can insert any sin you want. It grows. It rains. We give part of our heart away to it. Sin always leads to more sin. Our only other option, if we do not want to be controlled by sin is to present ourselves to a new and better master. That master is God, and and Paul's been very clear. The only way we can present ourselves to God is by faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot just be good enough that he will accept us. We have to believe we're not good enough, that Jesus died under the punishment we deserve. That's how we present ourselves to God to be our master. We are going to serve something. Our human wills are not just, again, in neutral and just, just, we're we're bent, we're broken. Paul says you have to understand you're going to obey, you're going to be the servant, you're going to be the slave of something, either sin or God. True freedom is not unlimited spontaneity. True freedom is finding the right master. True freedom is not freedom from the law, meaning freedom to do whatever I want. Freedom from the law is freedom for God. Not from God, for God. I've I've heard this metaphor used several times. Rachel and I just saw it again on something we were watching recently. Um, True freedom can be compared to a train. Okay, like God made us as wonderful locomotives, trains. But trains run on tracks. God built, right? People build trains to run on tracks. That's how they run best. And it's like God's moral commands are like the tracks we run best on. When a train decides, you know, the track's going left, but nobody can tell me what to do. I'm my own train. I'm going to make a right turn, even though the tracks go left. How does it go for the train? 
not great, right? It becomes a literal train wreck. Like that is, that's us. Real freedom is understanding my creator knows how life goes best and he's given me the tracks which lead to my freedom and my life operating the way it operates best. Those are our choices. We can be the slave of sin or we can be the slave of God and there really isn't another choice. Now, whichever one we choose comes with lots of consequences. Remember, Paul's answering the question, well, if I'm going to be forgiven anyway, I can just sin and sin and sin and sin. Right, Paul? Isn't that what you're teaching? Paul says no. And Paul wants his Roman audience to not leave until they hear him say there are still lots of consequences for obeying sin as a master. It, it, it runs us. It rules us. Right? I, I want to shirk my responsibility. I, don't want, I want to do what I want to do before long. I'm just controlled by doing what I want to do, even though it's, it's not good. The, main con- the first consequence I mentioned already, the first consequence of obeying sin is you, it always leads to more, more sin. That's why it gets enslaving. But the main consequence Paul mentions, and he mentions it over and over in this passage, the main consequence of sin is sin always leads to death. The wages of sin is death. He says that in verse 16, he says in 19, he says in 21, he says in 22, he says in 23. But wait a minute, Paul. How can this be so? Haven't you already taught us that eternal life is this life, is this free gift God gives to all those who believe. Yes. Yes. So how can sin still cost death if by faith I have eternal life? I'm not hoping to get eternal life. I don't hope I've been good enough when I get there that I gain eternal I've got eternal life by grace alone, through faith alone, right? So how can sin still cost death? Lots of ways. Has, has sin ever led to someone's physical death? All the time. How about Christians? Has there ever been a heaven-bound, redeemed Christian who died either due to their own sin or the sin of someone else? It happens all the time. Sin can lead to death, physical death. Um. Has there ever been the death of relationships or marriages due to sin? All the time. Remember, death is always a separation. It's not the annihilation of one thing. It's the separation of two things. Sin always lets the death seep into my life. It causes separation between spouses, between parents and kids, between friends. It leads to untimely physical death. Now, praise God, I said this last week, still true this week, there's one kind of death sin no longer can bring on me, and that's eternal death. I I am headed for an eternity with the Lord Jesus because of what he did for me, but that doesn't make sin not dangerous anymore. 
Now, being a slave of God brings different consequences. Okay? So, whichever master I obey, there's going to be consequences. If I obey sin, the consequence is going to be death creeping into my life. I'm not telling you you are going to physically die because of your next sin. But it always, it brings death. That's a natural consequence of sin. Now, Paul says that over and over and over again, and then he says something that's maybe a little surprising. If sin brings death, obeying God should bring what? You would think life. Only read through the passage. He never says that. Do you not know if you present yourselves as obedient slaves, your slaves are the one you obey. You obey sin, it results in death. You obey obedience, it results in righteousness. Or elsewhere in the passage, he uses the word sanctification. Verse 19 and verse 22, if we obey as our master, God, the result is sanctification. Paul's very careful not to say obedience leads to life. Even though in some ways you could say that, right? Um, if I am sinning a sin which could kill me and I quit that sin, am I more likely to have life than death? Well, yeah. But Paul doesn't want us to get the wrong idea because we don't obey our way into ultimate life. With God, we get that by faith. So, so Paul says, if we obey, we get righteousness. Again, it's not a righteousness that uh, would get us into heaven. But it is a righteousness which leads to what Paul calls sanctification. He uses the word um, that means sanctification twice. Sanctification, there's a big churchy word. Sanctification is, this, is a gradual process where God takes an adopted son or daughter, somebody who's believed in Jesus, and shapes them gradually into someone who looks more and more like their master, like Jesus. That's sanctification. How many of you, if I had started the service this way, if I, would have said, if I would have said, hey, how many of you want to be a better person a year from now than you are now? How many of you want to, whoa, how many of you want to be a better person? Would anybody, would you raise your hand on that? Yeah. Um, obedience cannot gain me eternal life. It can't. That ship sailed a long time ago. But obedience can make me, doing life with Jesus, his way, can make me more caring. It can make me more forgiving. It can make me more generous. It can make me less angry. It can make me more um, good things and less bad things. We can fill in your own blanks here, right? It can make me kinder. Obedience can make me gentler. It can make me more fervent in my devotion to God. It can make me a better spouse, a better parent, um, more self, less, less self-ish, more peaceful inside and out. That happens through obedience. And the opposite happens through disobedience. This seems like almost too elementary to say, but like, what I'm trying to get across here is sin is still bad and obedience is good. And that sounds good. How do I get there? And why is what I'm describing not me talking out of both sides of my mouth? Because I stand up here and hammer away against legalism all the time. Right? 
Legalism is the idea that I can be more in God's eyes through my obedience. The more I obey, the more God likes me. The more God loves me. No. God will be eternally satisfied with me because of what his son did on my behalf. And I bear the blindingly white righteousness of Jesus Christ and my measly, maggoty, filthy little righteousness that I can get through my obedience does not compare to the righteousness I bear because of the cross of Jesus. Okay? But that doesn't mean obedience isn't better for me than disobedience. Um, I want to draw your attention to something Paul says to this specific audience. Paul has apparently gotten word, not only is there a church in Rome, he's never been there, but these people are becoming more and more obedient. And he does not say, way to go, Romans, through your uh, self-discipline and willpower, you have made yourselves more obedient, and that's why I like you guys. He says, thanks be to God. Who gets the credit for a Christian's obedience? God. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves to sin, you obeyed from the heart that pattern of teaching you were entrusted to. That kind of teaching, that form of teaching you were entrusted to. Paul's never been there. He doesn't know who's been teaching probably. What is the form of teaching they were entrusted to? One word, what have they been taught? They've been taught the what? The gospel. How does obedience result in the life of a, of a Christian? Paul just told us, even though we might have missed it as we, as we went through. I'm so glad God showed up to you folks in Rome. You were slaves to sin, but you were entrusted to a kind, a form, a pattern of teaching. You were entrusted to the gospel. Notice again what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, you had the gospel entrusted to you, even though that's true. He says you guys were entrusted to the gospel. God gave you guys over to the gospel. That's really important. We are not primarily, we are not primarily a people who, even though what I'm about to say is true, but primarily we are not a people who we know the right answers and we are giving other people the right answers that we know. Primarily, we are a people who are given over to the gospel. We are entrusted to the gospel. When we do that, obedient, thank, praise be to God, obedience results. And there's a, there's a very subtle but a very important difference between being someone who has the right answers and I'm just trying to get other people to agree with me versus somebody who is given over in their heart to the gospel, which leads them to share that with other, other people. We are not primarily the protectors of tradition. Okay? When, people, when we as Christians start to believe we've got the right answers and our job is to protect what we've got and get others to join us, we wind up doing what Jesus taught where we become, uh, we teach tradition of men as if it's doctrine. So primarily, I love the songs we sing. I mean, I picked them out, so I should. Right? I love the songs we sing. 
I love wearing a tie when I preach. I don't love it most other times, okay? But we are not here primarily to make sure that the next generation of people who meet in this church dress like I do and sing the songs we do or other things like that. We are people given over to the gospel. The reason we meet here and, and study the Bible more than we do anything else is because I want us to know what we are giving our hearts to. And the gospel works everywhere. The gospel worked 12 hours ago when there were people in Kazakhstan meeting. Uh, it worked like 10 hours ago in Africa where there were people meeting. Their music is way different. Their dress is way different. And the ones who know and have entrusted to the real gospel, God is just as pleased. So we want to know what we are giving our heart to. And that will lead to obedience. That's what, that's what Paul commends God for doing through the Romans. You guys were entrusted to the gospel. And then because of that, even though you were slaves to sin, you start obeying from the heart what you were entrusted to. Now, by the way, all of that is why Paul gives us this. This is the main command in this passage. Present your, your bodies, yourselves, as slaves to righteousness, which leads to sanctification. That's why. But just in case, Paul's got somebody that's still wondering, now why should I do this? Why should I want to give up all this wonderful freedom I have to be a slave of God? Paul's going to try one other way to convince us that it's better to be God's slave than sin's slave. You ever, read, you ever read something in the Bible and go, holy smokes, I had no idea that was in there. Like, I've been reading this my whole life. How did I not see that? I want to show you the, the, what got me uh, here. These two verses. And really, I, I probably should have put the verse, um, the verse before on here, which reads, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Oh, I thought I was so free in regard to, I don't have to, right? I don't have to follow all those rules that Christians follow. Life is way better with, for me than it is for those stuffy old Christians. Then Paul says this. This blew my mind. So what benefit did you then reap from those things you are now ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. But now, freed from sin and enslaved to God, you have your benefit leading to sanctification and the end is eternal life. You know what Paul says in verse 21? I don't like to do this. We should not dwell on our past sin. But for a second, I just want you to think of some sins you used to sin that you are now ashamed of. Got something? Paul says this. While you're thinking of that, how beneficial was that sin that you're now ashamed of? Like now looking back, how much benefit are you now deriving in your current life based on that freedom you used to have back then you're now ashamed of? Like, it doesn't seem so beneficial right now, does it? 
That's what Paul wants people to see. Do you know the current sin you and I are struggling with is going to be 10 years from now, the same thing we look back on and go, I was so stupid. But it seems beneficial at the time. Seem, oh, I'd be so much happier. I'd have so much fun. I could get what I want if I would just use a little bit of... Paul says there's no benefit in it. There's death in it. And so keeping my current sin is going to have the exact same benefit my old sin had that I'm ashamed of now. And he says, but now you have a different choice. As a Christian, you're freed from slavery to sin, and you are enslaved to God. I love the way uh, this translation words is, you have your benefit. You know what our benefit is? Eternal life but it leads to sanctification. The end is eternal life, but slavery to God leads first to sanctification and then to eternal life. We try to cut out the middle step sometimes. I got my ticket to heaven, and now I'm going to try to be free from God. Paul's whole point of this passage is, you're not free from God. You're slave to sin. And it will enslave you if you let it. Real freedom is about finding the right master. The master who makes you free. And Paul adds Romans 6.23. It's an Awana verse. Most of us, many of us here have this one memorized. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord I don't know how that verse hardly even fits to what he's been talking about. This, this is a standalone tag, I believe, because Paul does not want to be misunderstood. Has Paul made himself clear that obedience is still important? Yes. Paul does not want you to leave here this morning thinking obedience is what gets me into heaven if he hasn't been clear on that. So he just says this, sin always earns death. Still today. But... Obedience does not what leads to eternal life. Obedience is a free gift of God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what we learn here this morning, I'll leave us with this question. And so I titled the sermon this, Who is your master? What are you mastered by? What desires do you have that you think are freedom that are actually slavery? And I would, I would ask you to make sure you're thinking of you. Because it's really easy to think of your sister-in-law who is enslaved to, oh man, it makes me think of him. He is so enslaved to, no. What is it that you think is Freedom that you convince yourself is okay, that is a rival master to your king. It might be easy to see. It might be something, might be something sexual, substance-related. Those are easier. Yours might be bitterness, anger, greed, achievement, work that's a rival 
master. I mean, it, it can be, I can, make, I can make my work my idol and I get my, uh, I, that's what I obey above everything else. I can make the lack of work my idol. And I think as long as I don't, if I can keep from doing much of anything, right, either one. It can be different for all of us. So who's your master? Who's your rival master? Why is it that you choose to obey it at times? What is it you think you get? I would ask yourself that. I'm going to ask you to consider taking Paul at his word and eventually that sin, that master is going to bring what? Death into your life. Somehow, some way. It is going to let the darkness and the death creep in. It's a bad master. But you've been set free to serve a better master, to run smoothly down the tracks God laid so we could see where life runs best. Would you pray with me? And we'll close. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder. It's, you know, it's not that we didn't know sin is bad and obedience is, is good, God. But sometimes we need, to, we need to know. We need to be reminded. We need to hear that, that real freedom is not freedom from you, but freedom for you. God, help us to give our hearts over to the gospel and to obedience and to sanctification. Not because our obedience and sanctification... Um, gains us eternal life. You've already taken care of that for us. But because you're a better master than my appetites. God, may we live on the tracks you've laid so that we might glorify you with our lives. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.